0: Then the people who had arrested Jesus led him to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of religious law and elders had gathered.
1: Meanwhile, Peter followed him at a distance and came to the high priest's courtyard. He went inside, but he went in and sat with the guards and waited to see how it would all end.
0: Inside, the leading priests and the entire high council were trying to find witnesses who would lie about Jesus so they could put him to death. But even though they found many who agreed to give false witness, they cannot use anyone's testimony.
1: Finally, two men came forward who declared, this man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, well, aren't you going to answer these charges? What do you have to say for yourself?
0: But Jesus remained silent. Then the high priest said to him, I demand in the name of the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the son of God.
1: Jesus replied, You have said it, and in the future you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven.
0: Then the high priest tore his clothing to show his horror and said, Blasphemy! Why do we need other witnesses? You have all heard his blasphemy. What is
1: your verdict? Guilty, "Guilty," they they shouted. He deserves deserves to die. die. Then they began to spit in Jesus' face and beat him with their fists. And some slapped him, jeering, prophesied to us, you Messiah, who hit you that time? Matthew 26, 57 through 68.
0: You may be seated.
2: Amen. Isn't it a joy to be led by our young people this morning? Some of you have some talented kids out there. That's that's, uh, just encouraging and joyful to be a part of Um, They are gearing up, our our student ministry is gearing up for their dinner theater that's coming up here at the end of the month. Uh, You should have something, I think, in your program about that, but they have a table in the back there that they're selling tickets for, so if you want to learn more about the dinner theater that they're having here at the end of the month, I'm sure they would love to talk to you more about it. We are also, it is April 7th, and the weather is finally awakening to this fact, And we are starting to gear ourselves up for for Easter, and uh, we've just been so thrilled and excited about this Easter uh, season, and uh, if you haven't heard already, uh, Easter Sunday is going to be obviously a a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus, something we're really looking forward to. We'll have three services on that Sunday, 8 o'clock, 9.30, and 11, and so we would love for you to join us, and we would love for anyone who you are going to invite hint, hint, to join us uh, as well. Consider how God might be speaking to you about someone you know and how the gospel story would mean everything uh, to them as it uh, no doubt has uh, for you as well. It's also going to be a baptism Sunday. This is the last Sunday to sign up for for baptisms on Easter Sunday. So if you fill out your name, we're going to speed the process up and and get in touch with you. But if you really have been delaying God's call to go before this body and before uh, God himself in baptism to ratify that special transformation that's happening inside of you, uh, I'd love to talk to you about that. So if you sign your name, we'll uh, get in touch with you and uh, we'll, we'll meet with you and uh, see if that's indeed what God is doing uh, in your heart. Uh, of course, this whole season has been kicked off by our Easter musical, Worthy is the Lamb. They started off last night. What an amazing performance. Um, man, they, and they just sound so good. The singing was tremendous, and just a, a great deal of effort and time had gone, has gone into this and uh, just was just really thrilling to see our, our church at work in this way to really share, to lay out the story, the gospel story, the story of Jesus, life, death, and resurrection. And uh, it was just great to see. And uh, to, the, we'll also have our, our second um, rendition of that tonight at, at seven o'clock, and so if you missed it, uh, we invite you to come, and maybe someone that can join you for uh, tonight at seven o'clock for "Worthy as the Lamb," our our Easter musical. Well, today we are actually b- beginning our Easter uh, series of of messages uh, in in some form or fashion. We're we're calling this uh, "Is this justice? Is this justice?" and we're we're asking that specific question. To allow ourselves to linger a little bit at the tough parts of, of the, the story of Jesus. The uh, trial and the execution part of Jesus. Now now we're you know Protestants and you know we're we're Easter people, right? And so a lot of times we're, we're just anxious to jump at the resurrection of Jesus on, on Easter Sunday and celebrate and all of that. And sometimes we have a hard time lingering at the cross and lingering at some of those really difficult bits of, of Jesus' trial and, and his suffering. So we're gonna, we're gonna rest there a little bit and ask that question, is this justice? Is this justice? And a little bit about that question because we talk about justice a lot and we think about justice a lot even if we don't put it in those, in those terms. Like, I'm a, I'm a father of a seven year old and really this question, is this justice for, for our, my world comes, into, comes in the form of, that's not fair. I don't wanna go to school today, it's not fair. My video game battery died, it's not fair. Springtime, the weather, warm weather is not coming, it's not fair. And I hear all of this about what's fair and what's unfair. And of course, I had to become my father, like we all do. We become our parents, and we rehearse the line because we heard it so many times. Everybody with me, life isn't fair, right? You all know this. Well, life is isn't fair. And so we go about ourselves helping to redefine for our children what fair is and what fair isn't. And yet even as adults, we still, by our own definition, try to decide, okay, what is just, what is fair, what is correct, and what isn't. And we don't seem to, we we, we sense that fairness is a thing we sense that it's, it's something that is truly there, that there, there is sort of a line of what's fair and isn't. But we don't always agree on what is fair and, and what isn't fair. So we have the sense that justice is a thing, that what is just, that there is something called justice. We just haven't, as people, as humanity, we just haven't kind of landed on exactly what that is, and we certainly have our opinions, and we like to voice those right, but we still haven't quite landed uh, together in this cohesive sort of definition of, of what is fair and what isn't fair. And the truth is, we can also apply this to the story of Jesus' trial and execution. But the fun thing, the cool thing about this is that what we find in this story as we ask this question is that we get challenged on our own definitions of fairness and are challenged on our own definitions of justice, almost as if we, in the midst of our own lives, complaining, this isn't fair, this isn't just, and our Heavenly Father is saying, listen, kid, life isn't fair, or let me redefine for you the fairness and the justice that I have through my, the lens of my own eyes. You see, the difference between Jesus and ourselves that we'll find in this story is that when we, when we complain about fairness, when we think about justice, we think about the things that we are subjected to. We think about the things that we have to put up with. We think about the things that we really have no control over, and so we whine about it not being fair. But the gospel story is different in the sense that it it witnesses to us that Jesus knew what he was getting into, and he chose it still on purpose. And so even in this tragedy, in the tragedy parts of the story of Jesus at the end, even in the the, the parts that we like to overlook and sort of rush to to Easter Sunday, those difficult parts, even in those, those troublesome ones, When we ask this question, is this justice, we're really searching for meaning and and purpose because it seemed that God knew what he was doing in all of this. And so it's important to ask, okay, what are you up to here? Like, God, what were you doing with this part that is really hard to see? In other words, what does it all mean? What is, what is the trial? What is the, the execution of Jesus? What, is that, what does that really mean? Now, that's a really important question. It's something I brought up last night as I gave our invitation after our Easter musical um, to share with you that, that the story of life, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection would just sort of stay a story if it didn't mean something to us there. We packed the room, For that musical. Why? Our worship attendance will be one of the largest of the year. If not the largest of the year on Easter Sunday. Why? How is it that so many people throughout generations. Millions of people. Maybe even billions of people. Throughout generations. And all around the world can come together in the same voice and say, Jesus changed my life. This story means something to me. See, I, I, and the funny thing is, I grew, up in the, I grew up learning the story. I grew up being taught the story of Jesus. My Sunday school teacher used to give me little chocolates for memorizing the scriptures. I had a lot of chocolate growing up. I knew the story. I knew the ins and the outs about the Christian faith. But it wasn't until my senior year of high school, when I was about the same age as uh, some of these young people up here, that I realized that I was I was missing something. Uh, here I was, like this, known as this sort of pastor's kid. I had it all t- together. I was missing something, and it was the spirit. It was the meaning. It was the the power behind this story and behind this this message. So we're gonna, in this question, is this justice, is that what we're gonna, that's what we're gonna sift through. That's what we're gonna ask. What does it really mean for us? And finding the meaning there is going to uh, highlight and lift up and prop up the meaning of the resurrection story, I promise you. If we let ourselves linger a little bit at the cross, the resurrection is gonna mean all the more for us. Now in the midst of all of this, we're gonna be seeing a, a, a great deal of um, paradoxes. You know, paradox is like a thing that has sort of contradictions within it. So Jesus is kind of a paradox in a sense because we say that he was, he was fully God and fully man. And you say, kind of wonder, okay, well, how does that work together? Those seem to be contradictory terms. And yet Jesus held those things in perfect harmony. But there's other things, especially about this, that is is a paradox uh, as well. Jesus died so that we would have life. We have death and we have life kind of mishmashed into the, the same the same story. We have sin and grace, and that we really won't, won't truly know what grace is, and we won't feel the impact of grace if we don't first feel the weight of sin. And and then there's this thing that we have in our worship space every single Sunday this thing called the cross I, I actually um, I happen to wear a cross on a regular basically a little cross here my parents gave this to me and it has a little blessing um, that they gave to me and I, I wear that as a, as a reminder and of that prayer and that blessing of my parents And um, you have some beautiful crosses out there this was given to me at one point uh, isn't that cool I don't wear this as much uh, anymore, but isn't it so funny that we we tend to prefer these crosses that are ornate and and beautiful and and shiny and people wear them around their neck. They put them on the on the back of their card. I mean, p- crosses are, uh, I, I think, we Christians would say, a, a symbol of of God's goodness on this earth, and we tend to forget that this was actually. Um, the, the the preferred torture method and execution method of the superpower in Jesus' day. There was nothing pleasant. There was nothing good uh, about this. So we have a little paradox there. And then when we arrive to, um, when we arrive to Good Friday, we find a paradox, don't we? Why would we call it good when we're celebrating or recognizing the torture and the execution of Jesus. So in the midst of this, we're gonna find a series of paradoxes and gonna challenge the way we view justice because we like to think of it as like this sort of perfect line of, of good and evil, good and bad, correct, fair, all those things, and yet we find these paradoxes, and it challenges our, our way of, of thinking about this. So I'd like to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 26 as we begin, and what we've arrived to in Matthew chapter 26 is we've, we've already gone past the Last Supper. Many of you are familiar with the Last Supper. Uh, We've already gone past the the scene in the garden of Gethsemane where Judas finally betrays Jesus with a kiss and he's arrested. And then the disciples, the followers of Jesus, they then scatter uh, about and Jesus is arrested and he's immediately taken to the house of the high priest who is Caiaphas, Caiaphas being the high priest had a special role and he presided over a council. Now it's important to think about this in terms not so much as church council, it's like that's how we tend to think of it, but this is really the, the government council. This is like uh, the senate or the house in In this particular day Now this is a theocracy So the religious system And the governmental system Are all one and the same And so to violate the religious system Was also to violate the the, the civic rules That they had for them uh, as well And so there were 70 men Made up of mostly Pharisees and Sadducees That sat on this council Called the Sanhedrin And Caiaphas the high priest Was the leader He was the one that presided Over all of them And they bring Jesus That very night They bring Jesus to go under trial um, with the Sanhedrin and with Caiaphas there. Now that's very interesting because Jewish law stated that they were not to hold a trial of any kind at night. And so here already in the very beginning we see that Caiaphas is willing to overlook one of their rules specifically to put Jesus on trial. Now, this is, this is exacerbated a, a, a little bit more because false witnesses now. False witnesses come, and they try to make things up about Jesus. And what they're trying to find, they're trying to find something legitimately that they can catch Jesus on, an accusation that they can catch Jesus on to specifically accuse him of being a blasphemer so that they can put him on trial and recommend. They weren't allowed to execute anyone because they were under Roman occupation. They could recommend to Rome that, they, that Jesus would be put to death. That is clearly their agenda in this part of the story. So they have people giving false witness and accusing Jesus of false things. But the rules stated that they had to have two people, that co- two witnesses that co- could corroborate the same story. And they were having a hard time getting the same story out of two people. They were rushing this, this whole thing. They, uh, they were just sort of making it up as they go along. But after that fact, there were two that came before the Sanhedrin, and they brought an accusation of Jesus that was one and the same, the two, and that was that Jesus had said that he was going to tear down the temple and in three days build it back up again. Now, this was a clear violation. The temple was considered to be God's dwelling place, God's house. You don't speak against the temple. You certainly don't issue threats against the temple. And to issue a threat against the temple was like issuing a threat against the White House. You guys kind of get this idea, the violation that exists there. But after they brought that to Jesus and he remained silent, they still, they were still looking for more. They were still looking for that one thing where they could catch Jesus on. And I have to think at this time that Jesus is wondering, it doesn't matter if I'm silent, doesn't matter if I say anything, clearly they have an agenda here. Clearly they have it out for me and they're gonna do whatever it takes to accuse me and to put me to death. And we don't often stop at this point and consider the heap of accusations against Jesus. False accusations, true accusations that were misunderstood and misinterpreted because they didn't get it. I wonder, we can identify with that, can't we? It hurts to be under accusation I hate it. It doesn't matter if it's false or if it's true, accusation hurts and I think it comes from this tr- this belief that we have to our core that deep down inside and we hear this kind of come out a lot of times when we speak but especially in the midst of accusation but deep down to our core we believe that we are good people. In fact, in the midst of accusation, you hear us self-justifying with that exact phrase. But well, I'm a good person we would say, or we hear people say. You see, this idea of accusation really contradicts or challenges that core belief that we have within ourselves, that that we are good people. Now, there's a lot of warped and and, and sort of messed up mindsets out there, Um, there are people uh, even in, in the same breath that would say, well, I'm not perfect, but I'm a good person. There are people that have these warped sense of what's good and what's wrong and and all of that. So make no mistake about that. But I think most of us have this core belief that that I'm a good person, or at least I'm trying to be a good person. I have intentions of being a good person. And so when someone accuses us of something, even if it's true, it kind of challenges that core belief that we have about ourselves. and, And it... It causes us to react, to become defensive, to self-justify, and, and it hurts. Now I have to say, those false accusations, they hurt the most. When I was young, and I hesitated sharing this story, but it's true, and it really does capture some of the evils that are happening around us in our society in our world, but when I was, in, when I was just in fourth grade, I was in school and our class was having library time. And I was going through a book when a young classmate named Jason came up to me and he showed me a book uh, that had the face of a gorilla on it. And he said, look, this is Marisol. And Marisol was the only person of color in our entire school. Um, Her family had immigrated from uh, Puerto Rico, she's Puerto Rican. And I don't remember exactly how I reacted, but obviously he thought he was making a joke. Well, he went on to tell all of his friends that actually it was me that had said that thing and done that thing. And word got around to the students and finally the teacher found out and the teacher pulled this young man, Jason, and I outside and I was so shocked by the whole thing, I really didn't even know how to defend myself. And Jason had this, you know, he's perpetuating all of this, and so he had his arguments already in his back pocket, and he began to accuse me. And before I knew it, I was the one that was being punished, taking home a detention slip. And my mom happened to work at the post office just next to the school, and so that's where I would go after school, and I brought this detention slip to my mom, and she read it, and she flipped. (laughs) Not only did I know what was happening at the time, but man, I... I learned from my mom that day how serious of offense this was. And so she grabbed me and she dragged me back to the school to talk to this teacher to see what was going on and finally I had a chance to defend myself and to say that it actually wasn't me. I didn't say what I said. And finally this kid blabbed enough to people that it was actually him that word got out and I was vindicated. Um, and and all of that. Yeah, I still have the sigh of relief. I just noticed that <laughs> to uh, escape the eternal punishment of my mom. <laughs> but it hurts. It hurts when we are when we are accused. You know, I don't think that this core belief that we are a good person, I don't think that it's entirely true, but I don't think that it, it's made up by our own selves either. See, the Bible teaches us that we all carry a birthmark because we were created by God. We all carry the image of God. We are image bearers of the creator. And that deep down inside, yes, every single one of us deep down inside, it's in there somewhere, we bear that birthmark of goodness from the creator. And I think that's why we are compelled to say, you know what, we are good people. There's something within us that is good. But we also know that, well, we've fallen a little bit short of that goodness, haven't we? In the way that God had intended uh, for us to be. The Apostle Paul reflects this in his words in Romans uh, 7. I kind of sense his own self-frustration. He says, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I that, that do it, but sin that dwells within me. And this is the story of the gospel that while we were created in God's image, we have fallen away through our, through our sin. You see, sooner or later, an accusation against us will be true. We have all been subject to accusation, and some of us may be false accusation, and as much as it hurts, if we're honest about it, we have all, we have all been held under accusation because, ex- because of exactly what we did. We, we've done those things that we have been accused of. That's sin. That's us falling short from the goodness of our creator. And this is what separates us from Jesus in the story who was subject to accusation. Because Jesus being the Messiah and the Son of God was without sin. In fact, it says it here from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians five twenty-one. He says, for our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, speaking about Jesus here, who knew no sin. He was without sin, and yet was subjected to accusation. And our questions, is this justice, begun, be, begin to surface. So Caiaphas, he's still looking for more. He needs that, that, that one thing to catch Jesus in, and so he finally confronts Jesus with a question. Tell me, straight, he stands up. Tell me, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? And Jesus answers uh, in a little bit of a clever sense, and we wonder, uh, you know, is he playing coy, or what is Jesus doing? He says, it is as you say uh, as you say it. And, and scholars have looked at the Greek, and some people have said, well, that, that Jesus is saying, yes, I am that, but maybe not in the way that you think that, that I That I am. And this was what Caiaphas was waiting to hear. He stands up and he, 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 he does the traditional show of, 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 of terror and, and, and mourning. He tears his, his, his garments, which was another interesting thing because the scripture also says in Leviticus that the high priest was not to do that. And so Caiaphas stands up in this dramatic show of anger and blasphemy And they begin their accusations against Jesus. Now, the reason they had ground, they thought they had ground to accuse Jesus was because of their unbelief. The reason why they felt like they had ground to accuse Jesus is because they were so sure that Jesus actually, in fact, was not the Messiah. And yet Jesus was. And so, in the Caiaphas's, in the Sanhedrin's accusations against, in so doing, they accuse themselves. They reveal their own unbelief. They reveal their own obstinance to what God was doing in the first century in Israel and Palestine. They completely. Uh, they, they have no eyes to see and ears to hear that God might be actually doing this thing that their people had hoped for for so long. They were completely unopened to this. Their accusation was rooted in unbelief. The book of Revelation describes Satan, the evil one, as the accuser, the accuser. And a lot of times, I know many of us find ourselves being maybe a little self-critical at times. But I've seen Satan work in this way. And maybe you have too. It's that voice that accuses and condemns and puts us on trial. It's the, the voice and the agenda that the accuser has to label us and define us who we are based off of our weaknesses and our sin. That we have fallen short from the birthmark of goodness that God had created us with. We have fallen short of that goodness that, that the way God had intended it in the very beginning, we've fallen short of that. And Satan's job as the accuser is to define you in that way to label you, to say that this is who you are. You are this fallen creature. And yet, Jesus, who was without sin, takes these accusations from the Sanhedrin precisely so that he can take the accusations with him to the cross, The voice of the accuser, like a tape on loop, over and over again in your minds, self-criticizing, condemning, telling you that that you're not worth a darn, telling you that you are unlovable, telling you that you will never make it. That voice of the accuser, Jesus, took accusations and took the voice of the accuser with him to the cross. In, uh, to finish up 2 Corinthians 5.21, he says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There was a time um, when I was just young in my ministry, I was attending seminary at the same time, and someone was upset with me. I think, I'm not exactly sure what was happening, but someone was having some, some serious issues and took issue with something that I said. Something I said triggered some of the fears. and uh, Instead of coming and talking to me about it, she, I found out who it was later, she uh, wrote anonymously in red pen on the back of a used postcard, uh, with a lot of nasty stuff but then at the end and I was a, a young seminary student just pursuing my call to, to pastoral ministry he, she said you'll never make it as a pastor and I have to wonder um, what if I listened to that? What if I allowed that voice to hang over me to guide me to oppress me what if I allowed that voice to win? You see, as people in Jesus Christ, accusations don't have power over us. False accusations don't have power over us because more than what anyone anyone thinks about you in this world, what the most important thing is what God thinks about you the most important thing is what God who God says that you are but even if it's true even if an accusation that's brought against you is true guess what we are confessing people we have this thing where Jesus says look my doors are open to come before me to confess your sins to lay it all it doesn't matter what it is lay it before I won't be surprised I promise lay it all before me Because I want it all. I want to forgive. I want to lavish my grace on all of it. And so come to my throne of grace, unafraid. Come to me with all of your hurts, habits, hangups. Come to me with all of your, your, your pimples, warts, and flaws, all of your weaknesses, all the things that you regret, all of your shame, all of your sin. Bring it to me. Lay it before me because that's what I want to lavish my grace on and pick you back up and say something new about you to have a new definition of who you are. I have a new claim over you. And that claim, we have a word for that, um, is justification. That under the, the voice of Satan, we have this voice that seeks to accuse and we, we move, in Jesus, we move from the accuser's voice to this voice that justifies. From accusation to Justification. And some people have said this justification, really, that is the the crux of the faith. That we are now defined by who Jesus Christ says that we are. Not because we've done anything different or earned this new label or definition, but because of what Jesus did. He took the accusations to the cross. And so as we are reading this and we are hearing this and we're absorbing this word, we as people of faith, we still kind of are in this battle of who, which voice to listen to, I find. At least I, I could speak for myself, I don't know about you. Every once in a while I have the voice of the accuser trying to, 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 to gain ground, trying to tell me who I'm not. And it's the voice of Jesus that speaks over that to remind me who we truly are. And we as people of faith, we have this choice to allow either voice to take root in our lives. Um, Author Kevin DeYoung, um, he has this to say about the church that really worries him. Much of the impotence of American churches is tied to a profound ignorance and apathy about justification Our people live in a fog of guilt. Live in a fog of guilt. Or just as bad they think that being a better person is all that God requires. If we live a life of simply trying to justify ourselves, we're either gonna fight like mad to try to come up with reasons why we're actually a good person Or in the failure of such, we are going to live under the weight of guilt and shame. And it's really what Jesus did in in his trial and his death that took all of that for us. And we don't have to people please. We don't have to fight like mad to defend ourselves. We don't have to come up with some abstract definition of a good purpose and a good person and say, well, that's, you know, that, that's who we are. That's tiring. <laughs> it's emotionally draining. We don't have to do any of that because Jesus took our accusations to the cross and justified us and said, through me, you are now the righteousness of God. Friends, don't buy into the lies that the accuser would speak over you. If this story, this passion story, the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, if it, if it says anything to you today, let it be that you are justified in him. You live under the freedom of his grace and of his mercy You don't have to, you don't have to earn approval. You don't have to work into your sense of worth. You don't have to people please. You could stand in true freedom of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Holy God, we stand now under the promises of your mercy and your grace. Lord, let your promises just just ring out in this moment. Let us see ourselves through your eyes. Let us see the world through your eyes. Help us to put aside any right fighting and self-justifying and Debates about what's fair or unfair. Help us just to sit in your grace. In your justification. And Lord, I pray especially for those who feel as though they are on trial right now. That they feel the weight of the accusations against them. If they are true or maybe a portion of them are true, Lord. Let them trust in your grace enough to confess and to seek your forgiveness. If they are false, Lord, let them rest on your promises and what, who you say that they are. Lord, we are so grateful that while on our own, we, we can't manage the voice of the accuser, but we don't have to because you nailed all of those to the cross. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.
3: We invite you to stand with us as we sing a song of thanksgiving to the Lord for this word that we've heard from Him today, that who we are is defined by Him, not by
2: the world. Would you join with us and sing? I am chosen.
3: For not against me, I am who you say I want to clear that again. I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. You are for me, not against me. I am who you say I am. Come on,
2: Children of God and people of the promise, as you go, stand on those promises every single day. Stand on those promises through every interaction. Stand on those promises through every difficulty and trial. And let it give you hope and peace. Go in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.